Hello, everyone. You are tuning into the latest edition of the Arbury Road podcast with myself, Dermot Kavanagh, as always. Joined, as usual, by Paco Rutsanti. Paco, how are you doing? Hello, everyone. Uh, really nice. A bit cloudy today in Valencia, but uh, really happy to be here. That's all right, too, sometimes. We're also joined today by Francesco Galeta. Francesco, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Very glad to hear it. So a little later in the show, we're going to focus in on Israel and Palestine, because as I'm sure you've seen, Francesco wrote a lovely article last week. And we just want to get a bit more into the topic, because as we all know, it's extremely important, it's extremely current, and we need a solution. So um, before we get into Israel and Palestine, we're going to start with the news from Belarus. So Paco, do you want to just give us a little brief overview of what happened in Belarus earlier this week? Yeah, I mean, everyone uh, has probably um, heard about the plane which was hijacked, basically, uh, by Belarus. It's, of course, a really, really uh, bad act of... Um, Let's clarify, Paco. Hijacked. You have to explain what you mean by hijacked. Hijacked. Because the plane wasn't technically hijacked. Well, okay, two uh, planes, two uh, pla- uh, planes... Uh, from uh, the Belarus army, uh, basically forced the plane to uh, land in, uh, in Minsk, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like just an act that is unbelievable. It's really, it's even difficult to think about it, like uh, happening today in 2021 with all the international agreement and this kind of thing. It brings us back more at, you know, the World War II, something, a scenario sort of World War II. Um, yeah, no, so it's a really, really great violation of international treaties. And, uh, uh, well, Europe has been challenged. It's clear that Europe has been challenged. It has been challenged many times lately, uh, starting with, the, you know, the Sofagate uh, and many other uh, internet, like, policy of foreign, moments of foreign affairs where Europe has been challenged. This is way worse. Like, this is, you know, it's an Irish company, a flight of an Irish company, which was flying between two European capitals, and Belarus acted as if the European Union wasn't there, and basically they did what they wanted to do. Okay, perfect, Paco. Um, We also should mention, so why did they take the plane down? Basically, on board the plane was um, a man named Roman Protasevich, which I've definitely pronounced incorrectly, but I'm sure we all know who I'm talking about. Now, what Roman did basically was nothing. He's a journalist who co-founded an extremely popular Telegram channel where people in Belarus organized opposition protests. Because let's remember, if we cast our minds back to August 2020, there was an election in Belarus where their leader, who's been there for decades, his name's Lukashenko, he decided he won the election. Many, many people claim that this is not the truth. So you've got an dictator-y type leader pulling down a plane, an EU plane outside of EU air, so he can go in and arrest a member, not a member of the opposition politically, but an extremely important figure in the opposition in Belarus. Francesco, have you had a look at this story at all? What do you have to say about it? I think it's it's very concerning, and uh, it really shows that the EU geopolitically and strategically is not really an actor at all. And this is an overall problem that we see in many, many cases, as Paco has highlighted, for example, with the Sofa Gate, uh, 
but also as we will uh, say later with the the Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In general, I think that um, the economic power of the of the EU is not matched politically by an ability to shape international affairs, and this is a problem he needs to con- to confront head on if he wants to progress in in some way. Uh, and in, in the way of European integration, because right now, um, it's, um, foreign policy is still in the hands of the, um, of the member states. I agree. Francesco, one question. Uh, I totally agree with you. At the same time, sometimes I think that, you know, it's not a case that the European Union has been challenged so many times lately. So would you say that it could be also that the emergence of the EU, though, as a geopolitical global actor as well, is causing this kind of uh, situation? Like in the sense, don't make, no, take me wrong, like the EU is definitely weak politically, is definitely not enough, but it's way more present than it was like 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you wouldn't have a unified political European poli- policy, you know, foreign policy. Where right now, basically, since Mogherini and with Belarus, uh, it's evident uh, they are starting to answer as one country. They are starting, all these countries, they are finally, not always, but starting finally to coordinate and to answer as a one country. What yeah. do you think? I think you're definitely right. Uh, there's been loads of progress made, as you said, under uh, Vice President Mogherini. But at the same time, like if you think of Russia as the principal strategic competitor of the, of the EU on the continent, for example, um, when the current vice president and high representative Borrell went to Moscow, he wasn't even, um, he didn't receive the diplomatic treatment because Russia does not recognize the EU as a sovereign entity. And instead, when the, when the French foreign minister went to Moscow to discuss the same matter, which was the tensions in, in Ukraine, he got the diplomatic treatment and met with uh, Putin. Uh, so this is concerning, I think, because, as you said, the EU is becoming more and more of a power, especially economically, but also politically. But it's still not recognized as such because its posture sometimes is not that of a great power, which is supposed to be. And uh, there's definitely still work to be done on that issue. Well, this this issue with Belarus surely then is the perfect opportunity for the EU to do the things that it hasn't until now done. As Paco said, it's an Irish airline, Ryanair. It's it was a flight that started in Greece that was going to Lithuania, two EU member states. We the EU now can they can expand on the economic sanctions against Lukashenko. They can include the Russian billionaires and oligarchs that support him. That without him would be drowning. He wouldn't be able to hold his power. There are a lot of things the EU can do in this matter, and it seems like they're all coming together. As you guys said, they need to act together, act as a block. We can do that here. We need to show some sort of resistance to Putin and his his um, seemingly endless wealth and support he can give to people like Lukashenko. So why don't we do it? Do we expect them to do anything other than ban the airlines like they did this morning? I've seen the preliminary conclusions of the of the council meeting, uh, so they are preparing a, a decision on the matter. And uh, yeah, they're definitely recommending sanctions, and uh, the high representative will have to present a proposal around that. So we'll see if this materializes into an actual response. 
And, um, you know, there's, there's a, there are a lot of memes going around the internet that the EU expresses, you know, various degrees of concerns when it comes to international, uh, problems. So it's deep concern, very concerned, very, various degrees. So we'll see this time, uh, what happens and hopefully we get a, a tough response because I think that a, a, an outright blockade is what is needed against this regime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, sorry, that yesterday actually they approved some economic sanction yesterday evening. Uh, yeah. I was checking yeah. right now. And they seem to be really consistent. For the first time, you know, there, usually there are always these kind of economic sanctions that usually are just symbolic, like they don't really have an impact. Uh, in, But the uh, ec- economic sanctions won't impact Lukashenko unless they're sanctioning Russian billionaires who support him. You can so you can sanction him all you want and his his people in Belarus, but that's not where the real support and the real money comes from. His strength comes from Russia and the EU need to, I don't think they will. I can't imagine they're going to start. Um... Yeah, because uh, I completely agree because uh, the real issue here is what uh, Belarus represents in, uh, internationally. Basically, it's a, an outpost of Russian power because these two countries are very close And the Lukashenko regime has been, you know, trying to uh, create a balancing act between Europe and Russia in trying, you know, to get uh, benefits from both. But when the democratic protests uh, erupted, of course, Lukashenko tried to shelter himself from the demands for, for, for democracy by asking help from, from Russia. And uh, I think that as long as Europe is not tough, on on Russia as it should be, it's very difficult that the situation in Belarus will change. Uh because we still have uh member states in Europe like like Germany who's uh you know very keen on on uh, doing business with with Russia even you know uh, going against uh you know the overall strategic posture of the of NATO for example. And uh, I think that needs to change in the future because otherwise the situation will not change much in the country. Is it time uh... Uh, for a European army, what do you think? I think that we, we are all pa- pacifists here. We all think hope that there is yeah, a diplomatic solution. But, we need you know. to protect people on that side of the continent. You know, um, it's easy yeah. to say it's easy living in Spain or living in France or living in Ireland, wherever, and say, "Oh, we don't need an army." Yeah, we don't. How do people feel in in Estonia and Lithuania and Latvia with Putin on the door? What do you think, Francesco? Well, I think that, um, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, people in countries still, still feel, feel very threatened by Russia. And that's why, uh, the appeal of the alliance with the United States is very strong because they feel more protected by the United States rather than other European countries because they are more keen on, you know, having friendly relationships with Russia, uh, like Germany, but even Italy. And uh, as long as we don't build a common uh, defense framework, which is, you know, very integrated, there's uh, some progress that is being made with PASCO and the uh, initiatives around common defense projects. But of course, you need a unified command to really, really create a structure that allows for all Europeans to feel safe in the same way. Until then, I think that you cannot really speak of Europe as a as a geopolitical entity because, uh, you know, geopolitics is, is a really simple uh, discipline it requires at its very basis that countries have military might and 
the EU doesn't have that, and it's just a an economic power, and uh, definitely things have to change in, on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's put a pin in. Let's put a pin in that for the moment, and we'll turn our attention to Israel and Palestine. So, updates from the last time we spoke about this. There's a ceasefire. So now it's time to talk peace, I guess. So, uh, Francesco, you offered a potential solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict in your article last week. Do you want to give us a, a brief overview of what your suggestions would be? My suggestion uh, has been to basically challenge the diplomatic, um, I would say, small talk by uh, by now, which is basically to say that the default solution of the conflict is a two-state solution. So to give one state to the Israelis, which already exists, and then another state to the Palestinians. And of course, this might have been an option um, basically in the 1940s or 1950s, when uh, the uh, partitioning of the of that part of the Middle East was um, was done by the, by the UN uh, in 1947, but then it was just the Israeli state that was created and not a a Palestinian state, and of course this created a lot of conflict, uh, as we know, and uh, we still we're still suffering the, the the consequences of that situation. So, and uh, we've seen throughout the, the decades that the situation could not evolve towards a functioning two-state solution because Israel and the Arab states had various conflicts. But after 1967, basically Israel uh, certified its supremacy over all of the Arab states as it defeated basically four Arab states in, in under six days. And it occupied all of the former Palestine mandate, so basically all of the, of the land from uh, Tel Aviv to basically the River Jordan. And um, with the Oslo process in the 90s, the situation seemed to change as Israel for the first time engaged with the Palestinian leadership to build some sort of uh, Palestinian state. But of course, this never materialized in a de facto state because um, major powers remain within the, the hands of the Israelis, because as of today, the Palestinian Authority uh, has no army, uh, it has uh, no uh, ability to collect taxes independently, and uh, of course, this is uh, this is not what a state looks like. But um, especially, Israel has been continuing its policy of uh, illegal uh, settlement uh, in um, in the West Bank. The, the occupied territories uh, under international law. And uh, this basically makes it impossible to create a contiguous state because uh, you just have, you know, different parcels of land that you have to piece together to create a Palestinian state. And there is no uh, instance where, you know, we don't see on any, any political map a state that looks like that, you know, bits of land here and there. So... Uh, it really looks like a Palestinian state is not possible, despite all of the diplomatic small talk, as I would say. And um, and this brought me also reading some literature around uh, around this issue to conclude that actually I think a um, a one state solution might be a possible uh, positive outcome of this conflict, which has been going on for a very long time, actually. 
since the 1930s, uh, because uh, Arabs became uh, concerned about Jewish migration to uh, Palestine already before the Second World War. So this one state solution would involve the creation of just one state, as it goes, and um, the basically power sharing between two different nationalities. So the presidency and the, and the office of the prime minister will rotate between the two different nationalities, the cabinet. So basically the government ministers would be half Palestinians and half uh, Israelis. So a same, the same number of, um, of ministers. And um, the representation in the parliament would be proportional as it currently is in Israel, because this um, this part of the world is very fragmented. There are many nationalities, many religions, and it's very important, I think, to uh, preserve uh, full representation. Um, oh, definitely. I think regardless of whatever solution we want to come to, respecting people's homeland, respecting people's right to self-determination and just representation, these are all absolutely essential, whatever yeah. solution we take yeah. Yeah, but of course, uh, this is a very contentious solution because it's been advocated by very different people. It's advocated by the uh, Israeli far right, you know, arguing that Israel should just seize all of the land of the former Palestine mandate and set up a, a state, uh, a Jewish state uh, all over the land. Then it's also advocated by Hamas saying we should take back all of the land and turn it into a Muslim state. But also, it's advocated by people I, you know, sympathize more with, which is, you know, the Israeli, some, a part of the Israeli left, uh, which argues that uh, Israel should go beyond the de facto model of the Jewish state and basically take responsibility for the well-being of all human beings in the, in the land of the former mandate. So basically, this means to, um, to have one state with two nations. So basically to have an expansion of, uh, basically, this is a de facto an expansion of the Israeli state, but changing its structure somehow to make it more inclusive in, in many ways, because there are many restrictions uh, right now for Arab Israeli citizens. For example, um, when you turn, uh, when you, um, when you reach uh, the age of 18, as a Jewish Israeli, you are supposed to join the army. Instead, if you're an Arab, you're not supposed to join the army. Of course, we can see the logic behind that because they want their army to be more committed to the cause of the Jewish state. And uh, of course, there are many other instances of such differences that need to be uh, reformed in a, very heavily because what we've seen with uh, the, the, the latest uh, spike in violence is that uh, Arab Israelis have become very aware of the of the situation in the sense that they uh, have expressed in very clear terms and sometimes even violently their support for um, for Palestinians because um, they may they might be Arab uh, citizens of Israel but they do not forget that there used to be something called Palestine in the region not so long ago and that even today there are uh, a few million Palestinian refugees in countries like Jordan, Lebanon, that are not allowed to return to either Israel or the lands of the West Bank, the, or the lands of the Palestinian Authority. And, uh, and despite the military superiority of Israel, the internal front is somehow, you know, showing some signs of uneasiness. 
And, uh, you know, that's, that's concerning also to the Israeli leadership. It shows that somehow the current model, although it's kind of the status quo can kind of work for a little while longer, it somehow has to change in the medium to long term because even for, because of uh, demographic pressure, Arab Israelis will grow at a higher rate than, uh, than uh, the Jewish population. And, but at the same time, the, um, uh, the ultra orthodox Jews will grow at a very high rate. So it will become a very explosive situation, actually. So you need, I think that reform will be needed at some point. Oh, definitely. As soon as possible, really, something has to be done. Like there, there are a couple aspects of that that I like. Um, I like, I like the idea of both parties being represented, both parties having their own space. I think there's a lot of uh, inequality, even, I know there's such clear inequality in the whole conflict, but there's real inequality, as you said, you know, all Jews are welcome to come back to Israel, but hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees, probably even into millions everywhere, can't go back to, to Palestine, you know? There are a lot of intricacies there that need to be balanced out. Um, but I don't know how I feel about it being based on the current state of Israel, because if it's one, if it's a one state solution with Palestine, let's say being an internal state within Israel or something similar, it's kind of just telling Israel at the end of all this, um, resettlement activity, which was a legal occupation that, okay, you, you won, you get what you want. Yeah. And, uh, uh, my, my temptation is to say yes. They have won because I think that's the reality on the ground. And um, there are two factors here. The first one is that, yes, Israel has really won militarily. But at the same time, it's also created what they call facts on the ground, which is the Israeli settlements. And of course, if um, if you think that you can somehow dismantle the settlements, that would involve a, a whole lot of violence because... The, a, a good proportion of people who choose to go live in the settlements are, you know, people who are really committed to the, to the Zionist cause. And sometimes they are even, you know, um, protected heavily by the Israeli army. They have contingents of, uh, of the army, uh, basically patrolling the area around the settlement. And, uh, yes, so my condition is to say yes. And, uh, but, and to try to, avoid that reality i think would just be somehow a perpetuation of the status quo because a confederation between israel and palestine is not really possible in the sense that palestine is an inferior actor as it is right now because israel has all the means to dominate over the palestinians and it somehow is doing that well Uh, i don't think i don't think that makes a, a confederation impossible for example a confederation would definitely be my proposal where you have two individual halves of the same government creating a mini international bloc, somewhat like the European Union, let's say. Not all EU member states have the same military strength or the same economic strength or anything else, but they can cooperate. Now, I understand it's completely different. There would only be two of them, and it's it's easy to cooperate with 23 or 24 or 25 members, other members, than it is just with your traditional enemy. But I'd like to see them call immediately, you know, something insane, 100 year binding ceasefire, 100 year binding peace treaty, 
an attempt to get a confederation of two individual states working together. They could be, a, they could become an honorary member of the European Union or something like that to try and incentivize it. But Israel has to sacrifice here because as you said, for all intents and purposes, Israel has won this argument. They now have to acknowledge that they're the ones who ran Palestinians out of the West Bank. They're the ones who, who were settled into that land and took it. Israel needs to give something back, regardless of the solution. Yeah, and if I can build on that, uh, there is also a wider problem. So I believe, no, we need to read this crisis also in the wider context of a problem of legitimacy of the UN, which roughly started basically after the Iraqi war, when basically Bush you know, started a war without any support from the UN. And we have a clear crisis of the UN of legitimacy where it's clear that Israel was allowed to do basically what they wanted, as you were saying, Francesco. So I, I totally agree with you when we say that there is not anymore a two-state solution in this moment, because the Palestinians have simply been betrayed by the international community. Simply, Israel didn't respect the international agreement, and they were allowed to do that. So there is a problem of legitimacy in the sense that the UN is weak, but also in the sense that it's, it seems clear from the other, you know, from a big part of the world population, which is not the Western population, that basically the Western country are doing, or at least in this case, Israel, which is sort of considered a Western country in the perception, is doing whatever they want, eh, as the US have been doing in the past 20 to 30 years. So with what legitimacy uh, is, are we going to propose uh, a one state run by Israel after you basically betray like the fact that, you know, extremism in Palestine has grown so much, it's not the case. It's because all the diplomatic solutions have failed, but they have failed because they have not been respected. And I close on this with another question for you. The other problem is Lebanon, like not other problem, but another thing that comes to my mind when you talk about one state is uh, Lebanon, where they tried a similar solution and it didn't really seem to work that well. Yeah. It's definitely something to think about, but um, of course, Lebanon has many problems that go beyond the uh, political framework of the country. It has massive economic problems, problems around security. Um, but then again, the, the, I'm not an expert on Lebanon, but this I know that it was set up basically as an outpost of uh, French colonialism, and uh, they left in power the Christian minority of of the country with power over the political and economic institutions of the country. So I think that, you know, um, different uh, frameworks, different political frameworks can have positive or negative outcomes. I think that the key here is to propose a fair and, yeah, and just settlement to the, to the conflict because uh, then uh, it will be the responsibility of uh, of Jews, uh, Arabs, uh, and all of the ethnicities and nationalities in that part of the world to see if that can work. Uh, the diplomatic community can only propose uh, a framework, and then it will be up to the actors on the ground to see if it is actually workable. And of course, I think that the key here is really to see that, first of all, the, the settlement is just and fair, uh, but... Second, um, I think the international community needs to be heavily involved in the issue.
as you said, Israel has has, especially because the especially in the last, I would say, ten to fifteen years, the international community has not been really concerned about uh, the situation there. And um, and um, the last serious attempt, even from Arab states, to close the conflict was in two thousand and five. Uh, and, uh, even recently, last year, they, they signed, uh, peace treaties with, peace treaties with Israel. It was, um, uh, the United Arab Emirates and a few others. And, uh, basically also Saudi Arabia couldn't sign, but they just said, you know, guys, you're doing a great thing because now we can do some, you know, some, some additional business with Israel. And, uh, it's the victims of all of this are the Palestinians, of course, because they've been left with no advocates. The, the only advocate that we have right now is basically Erdogan, who himself is a very, you know, shady figure, as we know. Um, so I, I think that what we really need is a, a paradigm shift. And, uh, this needs to be in the form of a strong diplomatic proposal. An innovative diplomatic proposal that tries to change the status quo, which is clearly not working for for a, for a just settlement of the conflict. Yeah, it would be great to see international actors like the U.S., Russia, the EU, whoever, just for once, just for one issue, focus on those people in that place instead of focusing on their own interests. Because, as you said at the top, it's just, or maybe it was before we came on on air is that it's the status quo just suits all the big players at the moment, you know? It's yeah. Not, unfortunately. It's not, the, the, the latest uh, episodes of violence just where, you know, um, the increase the political capital of people like Netanyahu, who was basically about to be thrown out of government. Now with this uh, rise in violence, you now can pose as the defender of Israeli interests and uh, the tough man able to do that. Even and then the- Hamas, Hamas is able to, you know, claim they're still, you know, very much for the defense of Palestinian rights over the land. And, uh, and then Turkey, Turkey can claim they're the only actor defending Palestinians internationally. And, uh, but again, there are also losers like, uh, the United States, which is, uh, you know, it didn't, you know, the reputation has uh, come out very negatively, I think, out of this situation because they were the only member of the Security Council vetoing a request for a ceasefire from uh, from the UN, yeah. but also the EU, which basically uh, could not draft a, could not um, approve a a statement on the situation calling for a ceasefire because Hungary vetoed a uh the statement made by the EU because it said it was too strong and anti-Israeli. So uh you know these two actors which are supposed to be you know the advocates of human rights couldn't even come out in support of a ceasefire. Yeah. Uh I think that <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done. There's clearly something going wrong. Yeah absolutely. It's embarrassing when you when you put it like that. Um Okay, I guess we'll we'll close with just another, and especially for the Biden administration, which is uh, going, which is bashing. Sorry, Sorry? can you? Sorry, can you guys, hear me? I'm having internet troubles here for a sec. Sorry, Francesco, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say that this is especially concerning for the Biden administration, which made the human rights like, once again the center of the, of uh, U.S. foreign policy. For example, against China, on Belarus, on Ukraine, on 
on Russia, but they couldn't support a ceasefire in in Gaza. So, yeah, yeah, big contradiction. Pretty embarrassing. Um, okay, we're going to close off on one more story that's kind of similar. It's also about occupation. So. Last week, there were thousands of, I think it were up to 8,000 migrants from Morocco who tried to get into the Spanish, one of the Spanish enclaves in Northern Africa um, called Ceuta. So basically what's happened here is that Morocco has been able to use migrants as a political tool. It's not the first time this has happened. It won't be the last time this has happened, but it's all about the debate around Western Sahara. So... For anyone who doesn't know, Western Sahara was occupied by Spanish by the Spanish um, state up until 1975. After they withdrew, both Morocco and Mauritania claimed the land. Now, a couple of years later, I think it was in 1979, Mauritania left their their claim. They they uh, renounced it. So you were just left with Morocco and also the Sahrawi people, who are the natives of Western Sahara. Now. They're calling for independence, their own recognized state. Morocco claimed that they own the land. And now because of the EU's issues with migration and all the migrants being able to arrive at the EU border in Morocco, the EU is going to recognize Morocco's claim to this land, just like Donald Trump did last year, which Biden has said he won't reverse. Paco, have you looked into this at all? Anything to say? It's an absolute disgrace. It definitely is. Um, again, I think well, going back to the to the, the previous point, like there is a, a problem really, and the, the migration question in general, like uh, is a reflection of this on of international equilibrium. Like we really don't have any more. Um, that's what I was pointing to Francesco now a little bit. We don't have any more an arbiter. We don't have any more uh, a power internationally that can guarantee rights and can seem to have a vision for uh, a sort of global equilibrium because that's what we need now uh, after all like the, these are all small uh, you know crises but that overall you know uh, the pope although is not my usually my <laughs> reference but used to uh, but he, he made this idea uh, of uh, a war a global war a world war made by the made by small conflicts, and I think it's a little bit what we are seeing in the past twenty uh, years, a little bit. So uh, w- what I'm saying that is like we, I think we need to recognize that something is not working, something has not been working uh, for a long time now, and that we need to find a new solution and a new equilibrium. And this is a little bit. A trade union of with all the things we discussed today and all the main problem of foreign policy of the EU of the last uh, five years ten, to ten years, the European Union needs to be a central actor to this process of rebuilding a sort of a peacekeeper authority, which cannot be the US anymore. It's clear the US cannot be. We, we cannot rely on Biden. To bring peace on Palestine, we never—they never were the peacekeepers, Paco. The of course, never ever. Of course, of course. But uh, what I'm saying is that de facto, they uh, they exploited this system for a really long time. Now this is not uh, more possible. And I think uh, this small crisis, Morocco, is one of them. Are a reflection. Now, of course, the area is more complex because there is also Spain involved. 
So there you need to show the power uh, again of the U also in uh, uh, in playing a role like also on a state. Well, why don't they, I, like what I'd like to see in Morocco is similar to what I'd like to see in Israel, which is in this case, it's Spain who drew lines on a map and told people where they live and where they don't live. In Israel, it was the Brits and the French. Why can't European major nations accept that they caused a lot of these issues in the past and sacrifice something to attempt to fix them, you know? Morocco is a perfect example of the EU doing nothing. Nothing and nothing and nothing and nothing until the Moroccans have had enough. Because let's also not remember, okay, absolutely 100% not condoning what Morocco did. There are witness migrants saying that the Moroccan military told them to go, that they can go and try and get into the border. It's absolutely abhorrent. It's terrible. But what else is Morocco supposed to do? You know, they don't have so many diplomatic weapons. And a lot of these issues were caused by Europeans in the first place. We really need to, they really need to take a look at some of these conflicts. And first of all, stop with the inaction, stop ignoring things until it's too late and reconcile for the issues of the past, you know? Like, why can't the, why can't there be an independent state in Western Sahara? You know? There's an, in, there's an indigenous people who've been there the whole time. They've been oppressed and they, they're calling for independence. What do you think, Francesco? Another one state solution? Well, that's, uh, I'm not, I'm not really sure because, um, again, I think that the, the Sahrawi people are being used as political pawns. Completely. Uh, because, um, the recognition of the, um, of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara was part of the Abraham Accords that Morocco signed with Israel, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for this reason, um, Israel and the United States recognized Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. And right now, you know, Morocco is really eager to uh, ask other countries to recognize sovereignty over that piece of land, mm-hmm. which has overall sovereignty over, like, in practical terms. And there, there are also, like, a, a lot of... Um, minefields that um to basically keep at bay <laughs> the Sahrawi people from from that land and um and uh, all of this was basically started by the fact that Spain um has accepted to host the leader of the um of the Sahrawi movement the president of the of the Sahrawi republic because uh, he had co- he had contracted covid uh, he was infected and uh, he needed treatment and uh, he's now in Spain. And also in the past, I've read um, the uh, the Moroccan, I- I'm not sure if it's that, uh, the former Catalan president is being hosted by Morocco right now. Uh, ah, yeah, he's hosted by Morocco. So there's a lot of tension between Spain and Morocco. So Morocco is basically using uh, also uh, refugees as political pawns, you know, they're letting through the border refugees so as to put pressure on the Spanish government so as to find a, you know, a negotiating uh, solution to, to the situation because they want the Western Sahara recognized and they, and they're not okay with having the leader of a, of a rebel movement being treated for COVID <laughs> abroad. I mean, it's the same. It's, it's, it's not the same, but it's the outcome essentially is the same. Who loses when these things happen? Migrants, normal people trying to improve their life conditions and being used. Imagine being used by your own government 
just to get information about an opposition leader who's in the hospital in a different country, you know? When I, I'd love to, I don't know, I want to see some people in a position of power, people with influence, countries with influence, organizations like the European Union, show some sort of sympathy for these migrants, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're completely uh, defenseless in the sense that because they they were, you know, subject to torture in, in some camps, basically concentration camps. Then they're told by the Moroccan government, go over there, go, go to Spain, go to Europe. And then they're met by the Spanish army. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, a, and then, you know, Sp- the, the Spanish, uh, Spanish people just, you know, all of these migrants coming to Europe, what they're looking for, there are no jobs, they're still no oh. jobs. It's a very difficult situation and it's basically the weak, you know, going against the weak because they're all used as, as political pawns by the far right and then by ruthless regimes. There really needs to be, um, as you said, some sort of authority of, uh, you know, basically reason. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. compassion, a little bit of empathy. It doesn't take too much, you know. It's kind of common sense, showing a bit of sympathy for other people. Because uh, I think that the, the tragic aspect of all of this is that, you know, the, the EU and the UN could really um, fulfill that role. But they're, you know, deliberately left with no power by states. And they put, you know, at the helm of these institutions, very weak figures, like they have no authority. Like if you take uh, the, the president of the commission, she was a nobody before she, she came into that yeah. position. And the same for the for the secretary general of the UN. He was the prime minister of Portugal. With all due respect to Portugal. But of course, you know, there could have been, you know, a few hundred people that could have taken their role with much more authority. Yeah. Because states do not want to be told by the UN and the EU what to do in international affairs because it doesn't suit their interests. That's it at the end of the day. They're all just, most leaders are looking out for their own individual interests and that of their own country, unfortunately. Like Um, this is a very Italian take, but imagine if, I don't know, like Draghi was president of the, of the commission, like he would have been able to basically scold any European country at any point. (laughs) That, that That wouldn't have been nice. For sure, we wouldn't have any more relationship with Turkey. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. After he called uh, Erdogan a dictator, who, which he is. Or take, I don't know, for example, if Obama was president of the, uh, was the secretary general of the UN, you know, he would have uh, some more, you know, yeah. diplomatic recognition. Yeah. But of course, there's a lot of opposition to his figure as well. But in general, this is, these are just examples saying uh-huh. that states prefer to have weak figures over, you know, influential and maybe divisive ones that you know have the power to change things yeah of course all right we better leave it there guys that was a great chat um should mention before we go as well today's the one year anniversary since uh george floyd got killed by that policeman in america so that's a fight that very much continues i saw just yesterday a prominent black lives matters a leader in london was shot in the head was she i think I think she's in critical condition hospital. I'm going to need to check up on that. I should have checked before we came on air. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the point being, racism still exists. Police brutality still exists. We really need to relook. We need to reassess a lot of the, the way we deal with a lot of these things. We need to support people who are oppressed, who are repressed, people who are mistreated. And we need to strive for more equal, fair society overall, I think. Francesco and Paco, thanks a million. Pleasure as always. Yeah.
And we'll leave it there. We'll be back later in the week with another episode. Have a nice evening. Ciao. Bye, guys. Ciao.